Judges chapter 1. New year and a new book of the Bible, Judges chapter 1. This will be the first time that uh, we go through an Old Testament narrative book since I've been here, so this will be exciting. And uh, you can pray for me as I continue to, to learn something about teaching and preaching God's Word and uh, do so from a book of the Old Testament, but we entrust this to God and his work in us that he will be glorified and the gospel will be preached and exalted. Judges chapter 1, let us hear from God's holy word, for the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of the Lord endures forever. Judges 1. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, who will be the first to go up and fight for us against the Canaanites? The Lord answered, Judah is to go. I have given the land into their hands. Then the men of Judah said to the Simeonites, their brothers, come up with us into the territory allotted to us to fight against the Canaanites. We in turn will go with you into yours. So the Simeonites went with them. When Judah attacked, the Lord gave the Canaanites and Perizzites into their hands, and they struck down 10,000 men at Bezek. It was there that they found Adonai Bezek and fought against him, putting to rout the Canaanites and Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they chased him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. Then Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off have picked up scraps under my table. Now God has paid me back for what I did to them. They brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. The men of Judah attacked Jerusalem also and took it. They put the city to the sword and set it on fire. After that, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites, living in the hill country, the Negev, and the western foothills. They advanced against the Canaanites, living in Hebron, formerly called Kiriath Arva, and they defeated Sheshai, Ahiman, and Talmai. From there, they advanced against the people living in Devir, formerly called Kiriath Sefer, And Caleb said, I will give my daughter Aksa in marriage to the man who attacks and captures Kiriath-Sephir. Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it. So Caleb gave his daughter Aksa to him in marriage. One day, when she came to Othniel, she urged him to ask her father for a field. When she got off her donkey, Caleb asked her, What can I do for you? She replied, Do me a special favor. Since you have given me land in the Negev, give me also springs of water. Then Caleb gave her the upper and lower springs. The descendants of Moses' father-in-law, the Kenite, went up from the city of Palms with the men of Judah to live among the people of the desert of Judah in the Negev near Arad. Then the men of Judah went with the Simeonites, their brothers, and attacked the Canaanites living in Zephath. And they totally destroyed the city. Therefore it was called Hormah. The men of Judah also took Gaza, Ashkelon, and Ekron, each city with its territory. The Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had iron chariots. 
As Moses had promised, Hebron was given to Caleb, who drove from it the three sons of Anak. The Benjamites, however, failed to dislodge the Jebusites, who were living in Jerusalem. To this day, the Jebusites live there with the Benjamites. Now the house of Joseph attacked Bethel, and the Lord was with them. When they sent men to spy out Bethel, formerly called Luz, the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Show us how to get into the city, and we will see that you are treated well. So he showed them, and they put the city to the sword, but spared the man and his whole family. He then went to the land of the Hittites, where he built a city and called it Luz, which is its name to this day. But Manasseh did not drive out the people of Bethshan, or Taanak, or Dor, or Ivliam, or Megiddo, and their surrounding settlements, for the Canaanites were determined to live in that land. When Israel became strong, they pressed the Canaanites into forced labor, but never drove them out completely. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites living in Gezer, but the Canaanites continued to live there among them. Neither did Zebulun drive out the Canaanites living in Kitron or Nahalal, who remained among them, but they did subject them to forced labor. Nor did Asher drive out those living in Akko or Sidon or Alab or Akzib or Helva or Afek or Rehov. And because of this, the people of Asher lived among the Canaanite inhabitants of the land. Neither did Naphtali drive out those living in Beth Shemesh or Beth Anoth, but the Naphtalites too lived among the Canaanite inhabitants of the land, and those living in Beth Shemesh and Beth Anoth became forced laborers for them. The Amorites confined the Danites to the hill country, not allowing them to come down into the plain, and the Amorites were determined also to hold out in Mount Heres, Aijalon, and Sha'alvim. But when the power of the house of Joseph increased, they too were pressed into forced labor. The boundary of the Amorites was from Scorpion Pass to Selah and beyond. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Today, then, we begin this new journey through the book of Judges. This is a book that has certainly caught the attention of scholars throughout the centuries and Particularly, it has caught the attention of critics of the Bible. It's written off often, criticized. It even creates horror in the minds of some who believe that the book of Judges stands alone as the case against the Bible for a morally authoritative text. You say that the the problems in Judges are too myriad to ever be able to uphold the idea or the conviction that the Bible creates any moral authority or holds any moral authority in the lives of anyone. But this is our book. These are our scriptures. God has given this to us for a reason. And we know that he has something to speak to us. And he will have something to speak to us each and every time we come to this book. We remember the words... In Romans chapter 15, when we're dealing with Old Testament narrative and historical accounts from a world much different than ours, Romans 15 says, For whatever was written in former days, that is the Old Testament, whatever is written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So instruction leads to endurance, which leads 
to hope. That's, that's really a main reason why we give ourselves to the study of the Old Testament scriptures. Instruction leads to encouragement and leads to hope. We see how God has preserved the scriptures. We see how God has preserved his people. It creates hope in our hearts. So we might summarize it this way. Look at the past of God's people, which, which are our spiritual forefathers. Look at the past, learn from the past, and live in light of the lesson. Look at the past, learn from the past, and live in light of the lesson. That should make the case for why it's good that we do this, why it's good that we would go to a book like Judges. But let me just offer a few general themes that we should keep in mind for our entire study of Judges. What do we learn when we go to learn, or when we go to study all of these things that have happened in the history of God's people? The first is this. The kingdom of God continues after important leaders die. The kingdom of God continues after important leaders die. Did you see how the book of Judges begins? It says, after the death of Joshua. Do you know how the book of Joshua begins? It says, after the death of Moses. And so you have this recurring theme in the history of Israel that after very important leaders die, and in Moses and Joshua's case, very godly men, the kingdom of God continues. Now, earthly kingdoms are very much threatened when important leaders die, right? We see kingdoms topple, and we see regimes change hands, and all kinds of politics can change uh, the the configuration of the entire world when kings and rulers and queens die. But the kingdom of God never changes. Why? Because it's God's kingdom, and God never dies, and God never changes. So the conclusion is that God is enough. That's the conclusion. God is enough. God's people did not need Moses to keep living in order to continue. They did not need Joshua. They did not need David. They did not need Solomon. God's kingdom continues in the face of the death of important leaders. And that's an important thing to keep in mind uh, for us today. Secondly, God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. God told the Israelites that they would possess the promised land. And it's a promise that takes a long time to realize its fulfillment. Nevertheless, God makes good on his promise. And so that teaches us that when we feel like it's taking a long time to realize the fulfillment of God's promises, we look back to our spiritual forefathers and we say, God keeps his promises. We know that all that he has promised will come true. Third, human sinfulness does not thwart God's purposes. This is perhaps one of the biggest themes of Judges. We are going to see all kinds of human sinfulness. We are going to see a a moral downgrade and deterioration in God's people that is really in many ways shocking. But it does not thwart God's purposes. Human sinfulness does not thwart God's purposes. And that's a comfort to us because we know no matter what, God wins and God reigns. His purposes will be fulfilled, his promises will come true, and he wins and he reigns. Fourth, somewhat connected to that, God saves sinners. God saves sinners. This is God's people, many of whom we will see one day in eternity in the new creation. And many, uh, all throughout the tribes of Israel, we're going to see a, a moral downgrade taking place. And yet, God's grace reigns. 
His his covenant grace is given to his people in ways that will astound us. And so when we come up, when we're confronted with the realities of our own sinfulness, when we're confronted with the realities of the depth of the evil that is latent in many of our hearts, we can remind ourselves that God saves sinners. We see that here in Judges. And then lastly, just generally, God wants fuller obedience from his people who learn from their past sins. He wants fuller obedience and devotion for those who learn from their past sins. These are the past sins of God's people. Like I said, our spiritual forefathers. We are to learn from them and we are to live in light of what we have learned. So think about this this morning. If God is God... And if God has saved us through Jesus Christ, if he has given us eternal life in Jesus Christ, how fully should we obey him? How fully should we trust his word? And how fully should we be devoted to him? What level of devotion does God deserve? What level of trust does God deserve? What level of obedience and service does God deserve if he is God and if Christ is our savior and he has saved us in Jesus Christ by his grace. Now think about those things. And we'll work through a couple things here with the remainder of our time. First, a general introduction, and then just some things that we notice in chapter one. In Judges, what we have is really the continuing of the account of the taking possession of the promised land after Joshua's death. The conquest of the promised land is really the center of the moral conundrum of the book of Judges. People say a loving God could never command his people to to take a land like Canaan by conquest and to devote entire people groups to destruction. But this is indeed what God commanded of his people. Deuteronomy 7 verse 2. This is God speaking, or sorry, Moses speaking through the Lord. When the Lord your God gives these people over to you and you defeat them, You must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. We're going to have all kinds of time as we go through the book of Judges to consider uh, the supposed moral problem of the conquest. But as we're starting out, let me offer just two thoughts, two thoughts on how we may start to think about the conquest. God telling his people to take possession of the land and to destroy the other people living in it. The first is this. The land of Canaan was especially to be a land of holiness. A land of holiness. Israel was to dwell in the land covenantally with God. Israel had been cleansed through the covenant of grace, through their worship. God was able to, in a special sense, dwell with the people of Israel, the tribes of Israel, because of that, because of the covenant. But... uh, He had not made such a covenant with the other people, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, all those that we read about. Israel was a holy people, set apart. And the land of Canaan was to be a holy land. And now in this way, we see that the land of Canaan, the promised land, functions as a prophetic picture of the new creation. It's giving us, in history, a picture of what the new heavens and the new earth are going to be like one day when God dwells with his people. Those who have been made holy by Christ through the gospel are going to be given eternal blessedness to live with God forever. 
to always and forever be with him and to enjoy his presence. But those who have rejected God and his gospel and his Christ, they will be devoted to eternal destruction. God will show himself to be both merciful and just, and in all things, he will show himself to be abundantly glorious. And so it's very interesting as you go through the scriptures and you find the kind of commands that God gives to his people when they are in the land of Canaan. There's a very specific set of commands that he gives to them, but then when they go outside of the borders of Canaan, those kind of prophetic pictures are no longer reigning. So in exile, when they're they're placed into exile, God's people later on in the Old Testament, they're not commanded to devote the Babylonians to destruction because it's in the land of Canaan particularly that functions as this picture of holiness. And in doing so, we're affirming what God teaches us of what will happen at the end of all things. Secondly, the people of Canaan were utterly sinful and wicked. The people of Canaan were utterly sinful and wicked. God says, I'm not doing this necessarily because you Israelites are so very good. I'm doing this because the Canaanites are so very bad. They were engaged in rampant wickedness that we all should see and easily condemn. The very sad irony is that many of the things the Canaanites did have uh, parallels to what we see in our world today. They devoted their own children to altars of sacrifice. They mutilated their enemies and treated them like animals. They abused and exploited their women in ways that show uh, their moral bankruptcy. And the sad thing that we will see in the book of Judges is that God's people will make compromise after compromise and allow this kind of evil to dwell among them and they will start to live in the same way. They will start to live like these wicked peoples. And this reminds us of the evil that dwells within our own hearts, something that we spoke of earlier in our service. What does God call us to do with the evil in our hearts? He calls us to kill it, to mortify it, to, in a sense, show it no mercy. You see, God only calls us to kill that which would kill us. He only calls us to kill that which would kill us. He says, kill your sin. Romans 8 verse 13. If by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The sin that dwells in our hearts would kill us, but we need to put it to death. You can be reminded of the Garden of Eden. What was Adam to do when he was confronted with the serpent? He should have killed the serpent. He should have slain him right there, but he didn't. And this is especially something that we see in Judges. There will be courage, there will be a willingness to to, to go out onto the battlefield, but there will be a common trait with the rulers and the governors of God's people, and it will be this. This is the way one commentator puts it. Although all the judges serve as God's, uh, Yahweh's agents of deliverance from foreign enemies, not one of them has uh, had the moral or spiritual constitution to launch a crusade against the enemy within to denounce the idolatry of the nation, or to call the people back to Yahweh. You see, so often people, groups, and kingdoms totter and fall, not because of the enemies outside the gates, but because of the enemies within the gates. And the same would be true for our own lives. It's maybe not so much the enemies that lie outside of our hearts, it's the enemy that lies within 
our hearts. And that is where we need to do battle. There's a willingness to go on the physical battlefield, but there is an unwillingness to engage in the battle of the heart in Judges. And that really is the one that God is most concerned with. He demands devotion from his people. He desires total devotion from his people. And this is perfectly consonant with who he is. God reigns. He's the everlasting God. He can, he can demand that from us. Not only that, he must demand it. Being a God who is all-knowing, he knows what's best for us, and he alone is what's best for his people. So he can look at us and say, I want total devotion from you, because the only thing that will satisfy you is when you find your rest in me. That's why it's not It's not self-seeking for God to say, I want my people to be devoted to me. It's good for us. That is our ultimate good. In your presence, Psalm 16, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So just those couple of things when it comes to the conquest. The wickedness of the Canaanite people and uh, specifically the laws that govern the promised land particularly. When we speak of judges, we're not speaking of uh, people in robes in a courtroom. We're just talking about tribal rulers, tribal governors. The book of Judges is really the book of tribal rulers. And we're going to see the tribes named after Jacob's sons. And in a couple uh, cases, Joseph's sons. The tribes of Israel uh, going in to take possession of the land. And what is the purpose of Judges? Some people say it's, it's a case being made for the king. It, it's a case being made for a Davidic king to come and rule. We read again and again in Judges, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so people say, well, it, this book was written so that the people could see, oh, we need a king. And that may be the case, but it seems that this functions more like a sermon. The book of Judges functions as an appeal to God's people. And ultimately what it is saying is that God is not reigning. You are called to have God as your king. You've rejected God as your king. You need to return to him. You need to look at what's going on in your life, examine and realize the wickedness in your heart, and you need to return to Yahweh. It's a prophetic call rooted in the objective events in the past in which the author attempts to persuade the readers chiefly to repentance in order that they might experience a spiritual and moral transformation. Look at the things of your life, realize that it's wicked, return to God, and be spiritually and morally transformed. And that's why it's relevant for us today. It causes us to examine our lives and examine uh, the evil that we are too often willing to dwell with. So we see that chapter 1 is the beginning of a sad story. It's the beginning of a sad story. But a couple things just to note quickly as that we notice in chapter 1. The first thing that we notice in chapter 1 is that there is a faithfulness and a sensitivity to God here in chapter 1 that's not going to be present later on. It's a, it's a story of deterioration and downgrade. So this really is the moral and spiritual high point of the book of Judges. There are things going on in chapter 1, peaceful relationships, love, devotedness to God that we're not going to see later on. But a second purpose is this. Even though there are many good things that are going on in this chapter, we're already seeing some cracks in the foundation. 
we're already seeing some bends and chinks in the armor that foreshadow the many bad things to come. And much of what it comes down to is Israel's willingness to dwell with evil. Their willingness to allow evil to still be with them in the land. And whenever we're willing for evil to make a home in our lives, we'll pay a price. Whenever, we're, whenever we allow evil to find a place in our lives, we will pay a price. So first we see, here are some of the good things we see. Verses 1 and 2, we read that Israel seeks God's will. They, they don't know who is going to go in to go to possess the land. And so what do they do? They go and they ask God. Presumably, this would have been the way that was prescribed earlier in the Old Testament. It could have been through a priest who would have consulted via the uh, Urim and the Thummim, those special lots that they would cast, to find out the will of God. But the point is, they don't know what to do, and so they ask God. We're not going to see that very much in Judges, where the people of God don't know what to do, and so they ask God what they ought to do. One commentator says, verses 1 and 2 are the sharpest contrast possible to the rest of the book. He says the whole rest of the book is kind of a departure from seeking God's will. Another good thing that we see is tribal cooperation. Judah, the tribe of Judah, and the tribe of Simeon work together. This is a natural alliance. Uh, Judah and Simeon were both the sons of Leah, Jacob's first daughter. So there would have been an affinity there between these two tribes. Also, Simeon's land was really an enclave within Judah's land. Simeon was a smaller tribe. So it's natural that uh, they would work together. But their working together is a way to throw into contrast the kind of infighting and distrust that we're going to see later on with the tribes of Israel. And the lesson here, of course, is that God's people are going to be much more effective when they are dwelling in unity. This was a a big appeal of the letter of Philippians, wasn't it? Uh, Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, by having the same accord, by dwelling in love. We read it in Colossians chapter 3, forgive as you have been forgiven. Galatians chapter 5, I always find it interesting in the the deeds of the flesh listed in Galatians 5 that there's sexual immorality at the beginning There's sexual immorality at the end, and in the middle, it's all kind of social unrest, right? Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, and divisions. These are the works of the flesh, when God's people are set at odds against one another. And we see that in the book of Judges. There's there's an effectiveness with Judah and Simeon in chapter 1. You're not going to see that at all, really, the rest of the book of Judges. Another good thing, there's a family peace and a respectful treatment of women. Family peace and a respectful treatment of women that you're not going to get the rest of the story. Our modern ears may find it odd that Caleb offers his daughter in marriage to someone who's willing to go into the land and take possession of it, right? That it just, that's not something that really tends to happen in our world. And so it may sound chauvinistic and strange uh, for us to read that about Caleb, but really he's doing a good thing. What he's doing is he's ensuring that his daughter marries a man who has faith and integrity and honor and he lives by trusting his God. God has said, this is what you are to do. Go into the land and take possession of it. Caleb says, I know what kind of man I want for my daughter, a man who trusts God's word. And so Othniel goes in. 
He's actually not the, the way the NIV translates it here, it sounds like he's Aksa's uncle. He's actually not. He's, he's, he's more like a distant cousin. The NIV doesn't get that quite right there. So this is more like a distant cousin. And Othniel goes in and he does, he trusts the Lord. He has this, this amazing feat of, of showing strength, showing faith. And Caleb gives his daughter to him. He ensures that his daughter is married to a good man. And then we have that subsequent story of Aksa, which really shows a deep mutual love and respect between father and daughter. There's a problem. You see, Othniel's really excited. He's got a beautiful wife, and he gets a piece of land along with it, right? But there's no springs of water in the land that he's been given. This is very typical of men. Right? You've got a beautiful woman to marry. You've got a piece of land. There's no indoor plumbing. doesn't matter. We'll make it work. We'll figure it out. Life is great, right? And the, the woman says, no, 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 no. That's not going to be good enough. So Aksa makes an appeal to her father. And it's more than we read in the NIV, give me, do me a favor. It's really, give me a blessing. Are you willing to bless me? She goes to her father. What does she do? She gets off her donkey. She bows down. She shows uh, deep respect and reverence for her father. So there's this appeal, which is this very beautifully feminine thing to do. Aksa does this wonderfully feminine thing of showing respect and reverence to her father, asks for a blessing, and of course, what does a loving father do? A loving father is going to grant any blessing that he can to the daughter whom he loves. So there's this family peace and this respectful treatment of women that you're not going to see later on in Judges. Here are some of the negative pictures, though. Here are some cracks in the foundation. And the first is what you call Canaanization. God's people starting to live like the people of Canaan. This is uh, how empires and even churches fall apart. It's not in one fell swoop. It is by the slow creep of compromise, of sin, of moral downgrading that eventually just results in an implode. Everything collapses in on itself. The slow creep of sin is the slow creep of destruction. Judah defeats Bezek, but then they find the king of Bezek, Adonai Bezek. It just means Lord of Bezek. And what do they do? They cut off his thumbs and his big toes. What would this do? This would cripple a man, right? It would render him useless in battle. Can't hold a sword anymore. Can't defend himself. It humiliates him. It dehumanizes him. But then he has his own take on the situation. Adonai Bezek says, well, I've done this to 70 kings. In other words, I've done this a complete number of times that I should have expected that at some point this is going to come back and bite me. God has paid back me for what I have done to so many others. So we may read that and say, well, it just sounds like sort of eye for eye, tooth for tooth justice. But this is not a good thing at all. This is a very bad thing. God's people have done to this king what he has done to others. In other words, they're living by the moral standard of a Canaanite king. Why would they do that when God has said how awful these people are? So in their treatment of this tribal king, Adonai Bezek, they've already started to act like the Canaanites. And the author will use this as a polemic against God's people. Look at what you've become. You're no better than the people you were told to drive out of the land. You're no better. 
You could imagine maybe a group of young people growing up at a church, and they're all very close throughout middle school and high school. They're going their separate ways when they go to college, and so they all make a pact, a a promise to each other that they're going to continue to serve the Lord. They're going to continue to to, to stand against uh, the evil and the wickedness that we so often see in the world and so often see on college campuses. But one day, many of them hear that one from their group is sort of changed his life around, joined a fraternity, engaging in wild partying, all kinds of sexual deviancy. And so they show up on campus, and and you could even imagine maybe they would do so in the midst of one of these parties, and they appeal to him, look around you, look at what you've become. You've become exactly what you said you were going to stand against, the canonization of Israel, living in the way, in the ways of the wicked people around them. We also can think about the canonization of the church. Certainly we need to be witnesses in the world. We need to be in the world. But when the church looks like the world, we have an enormous problem. And that in many ways is the state of the American evangelical church. We've made compromise after compromise. And we no longer have a culture of our own in order to engage in any kind of culture war. Secularists are merely waging war against the vestiges of a Christian culture, what is left over. So the people of God need to recover our identity and our love and our devotion to God. We need to to see the ways in which we've made compromises. One commentator says this, instead of reshaping the world after the image of Yahweh's will, they live, that is, Israel lives in and with the world, and before long they have taken on the characteristics of the world. Instead of making this the land of the people of God, they become like the people of the land. Think about Adonai Bezek. Israel and Judah goes, they conquer this land. They would have been commanded very clearly, wipe him out, take out this king, eliminate him. Kill him. That's what God had told them to do. But what do they do? They do something that in one sense seems sort of merciful. You let him continue to live. But on the other hand, it's very degrading. It's very humiliating. And so they let this evil man live with them. And in doing so, they themselves become corrupted by evil. Because the way they keep him alive is they commit evil. And they do, they act in the way that... He has acted towards others. Think about also what the house of Joseph does when they attack Bethel, which means the house of God. It's a holy site for God's people already, going back to the book of Genesis. You remember, they make this covenant with the sky. Show us the way in. Show us the way into your city, and we'll let you go. Now, he comes from this city, this place that used to be called Luz, lose and they let him go he takes his family he relocates and then he builds a city by the same name what happens when you're in your garden you take up a weed if you were to uproot a weed and you just take it to another spot in your garden and you plant it there you're like you know i'm going to do some weeding but i'm going to uproot all of them and i'm going to go take them to another another spot in my garden and replant them what's going to happen it's going to flourish just like it always was doing, right? It's going to overtake that part of the garden. So they let this guy go free. He builds a city by the same name by which we're to, we're to know that he's building a city with the same values. Same kind of evil is going to be rampant in the new city that he builds. Sin will always replant itself where it finds willing soil. 
So you have canonization. You have a willingness to let evil dwell. We read at the end of the chapter, they failed to dislodge. They failed to drive out. They failed to drive out. And time after time, what happens? When they become powerful enough to drive out these Canaanite people groups, instead of driving them out or eliminating them, what do they do? They make them slaves. They make them their servants. Because in the thinking of the world, the thinking of the natural man, you're going to say, well, we would get much further ahead if we use these people for our labor. And so rather than obeying God, you think like the ways of the world and you let evil dwell with you. The last thing that we see is a lack of faith, a lack of faith. And just illustrate that, uh, you can see that in the way that they make these Canaanite peoples their uh, forced servants. But one particular place in verse 19, we read, The Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had iron chariots. We may read that and say, oh, well, they must have come up against an army that was just too strong for them, too technologically advanced. That's not what we're supposed to be uh, thinking about when we're reading that. What we are to, to see and to know is that the men of Judah, though they do many good things in chapter one, when they see these iron chariots, what happens? They lose their nerve. They no longer live in faith towards what God has promised to them. And they said, well, these people have iron chariots, so we're not going to come up against them. And maybe they did for a little while, but it proved very difficult, and so they retreat. And I don't want to allegorize this too much for our own lives, but in our own journeys of faith, we're all going to come up against iron chariot armies. God, in, in saying, be faithful to me, trust me, believe in my promises, that, that doesn't mean that every step is going to be easy. That doesn't mean that every day of our life is going to prove just sunshine and dandelions, right? It's going to be difficult. And God still has the authority to demand from us faith and love and devotion and say, trust me, it's not always going to be easy. Sure, there's going to be armies with iron chariots, It's not always going to be easy, but do you trust his word? As we said at the beginning, how fully, if God is God, if God has saved us by his grace in Christ, guaranteed to us all of the blessings of eternal life and the inheritance that we have that's laid up for heaven by his grace, if he has done that, how fully should we obey him? How fully should we trust his word? How fully should we be devoted to him? This is an appeal The book of Judges is a sermon, essentially, to say, look at your life. What are the ways in which evil has been able to gain a foothold, to have a root, to have a presence in your life? Return to God. Return to him in repentance and faith. It's about God's grace to save sinners. We see God saves sinners. But in in so great a salvation that he has given to us, so great a salvation, we're able to look at our lives and say, since God is so wonderful, since God is so holy, since God is so mighty, we must look at our lives and see the ways in which we've made little compromise after little compromise. We've allowed sin to gain a foothold. We need to return to our God in repentance and faith. We need to look at the past. We need to learn from the past and live in light of the lesson. Don't live the way that our spiritual forefathers did and allowed this spiritual and moral downgrade to go on and on and on and on. By the end of Judges, we will be shocked.
by some of the things that God's people have done in the past. And in some ways we'll be ashamed. But it causes us to look at our lives and say, not going to repeat the errors of the past. God has given us a gospel. He's given us the Holy Spirit. He's given us his word to lead and guide and direct us. And we trust that his promises are true. We're going to live by faith, not a lack of faith. We're going to live by faith. And we're going to fight against all of these things and try to gain a foothold in our lives that God might be glorified. May he do it by his grace. And may he do it uh, as we seek his glory in all that we do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we pray that uh, you will bless it to us. We give you all of the glory. Cleanse us, wash us, teach us, and lead us. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand together and